1: This
2: episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
3: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
2: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: Christ will not be away from his church for long. His love and her desire will not let him.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's episode was preached in the early 1600s by Richard Sibbs in England. Joel, if there is one part of the Bible people probably don't hear
2: preached, or you may not even read a whole lot, it's Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Uh, people tend to avoid this section of the Bible because of its descriptions of what seems to be sex and love and because people really don't know what to do with it. Is this a book that celebrates marriage? Is it a bunch of poems? Is it Solomon's love story for this girl? Is it or as traditionally it was known by a lot of the people in the reformers and other people it was it was God's love for the church as an allegory. And it may have meant these things. It may have meant other things. I kind of put myself more in the camp now where I think there's definitely a very allegorical nature here. But Joel, he might push back. He might, you've been telling me you're a little more on the literal side there.
3: Yeah, no, I i definitely feel literal first and foremost. I do understand, you know, it, it is a beautiful image of the church and of Christ's love for the church. But I think I think Solomon is falling in love with, with a girl out in the field. Like, I think it is a, a love story. First and foremost, I I know I, we can go back and forth about this all day. But. I think for
2: me, I go I definitely see where Joel's at, and I also think I don't know that that would have made it in the Bible if there wasn't a deeper meaning behind it. But anyway, so in this sermon by Richard Sibbs, though, we're gonna he's gonna be talking about this in allegorical, really rich and beautiful terms, and you can maybe listen to it and afterwards maybe you'll maybe you'll have your conclusion changed, or maybe you'll be
3: right where you were. we we'll, let us know what you where you go with that. Yeah, you'll be the judge of that. Uh, R- Richard Sibbs. Born in 1577, probably, we think, in the eastern tip of England there, his father was a wheelwright. Troy, do you know what a wheelwright is? He
2: makes wheels,
3: I think? That's exactly. Yeah, he literally, it's it's someone who makes wheels. A lot of wagons about in that day. Wagons need wheels. They need to be repaired. And that's what his father did. And that's what his father expected him to do growing up. But early on in Sib's life, he showed great promise as a student, and he was sent to college in 1595 he was an excellent student he flourished there and in 1602 or or 1603 sometime in the early 1600s there uh that's when he gave his life to christ he felt the conviction in in church one day and he had a genuine desire to to change his life and to dedicate it towards the lord and so that's where we see his dedication and his drive start reflect his pursuit after god
2: we talk about a lot of incredible people on this show. Hudson Taylor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Spurgeon, these, these people who live these adventurous lives. But Sibs is actually a bit comforting to me. Once in a while, it's nice to kind of hear what I, I don't want to say average but compared to maybe these incredibly dramatic lives with shipwrecks and wars and all that stuff he's you know george Mueller was a thief and hudson taylor's this missionary christmas evans was beaten and lost an eye and christopher love was locked in an attic and sometimes these dramatic men sometimes i i just think oh my gosh like unless you live a life like that you know you're not doing it but then you have men like Richard Sibbs and Alexander McLaren, and these guys remind me, look, there are different ways God is glorified, and God is glorified through these faithful men in the peaceful times who have a little bit quieter lives as well, and we can respect you know, both of those sides of the coin. After getting his master's, he begins lecturing and preaching. Somewhere between uh, 1610 and 1617, he goes on to preach at this big church called Gray's Inn. And um, when he agrees to preach there, he actually has to relinquish any uh, chance of ever getting to marry. And uh, he agrees to do that, which I think is a pretty big sacrifice.
3: Looking at how Sibs interacted with the culture there in England, it's it's kind of hard to tell if he had trouble at times as a member of the Church of England, who also seemed to be a Puritan. And that's kind of a unique situation. He knew a lot of famous Puritans, and was really well connected with the Puritan circles, but he also believed that the best way to change and help the Church of England was to reform it from inside of it. Instead of breaking apart like the Puritans were doing, he wanted to help the Church from from within. As a member of the Church of England, but because his beliefs mirrored the Puritans so much, it seems to have 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 created debates in his life and the way people saw him. It was often the source of debate: Are you a Puritan, or are you a church? Are you a member of the Church of England? And it's something that scholars still debate about a lot today, like how how that functions, how that lands. But he definitely had a heart for helping to try and correct the Church of England.
2: Sibs also got involved with something called Impropriations. Joel, what is an Impropriation? What do you think?
3: No idea.
2: Yeah, I had no idea either. I'd never heard this word used. Maybe some of you are just scholars and going, of course I know what that is, but I did not know. And I'm going to be honest. It took me not a not a short amount of time to research this to try to understand this weird controversy that happens in his life Uh, that was a really big deal in the 1600s but it's just not something that we deal with anymore but I'm going to put it in layman's terms to the best that I could it took again a while to figure out what exactly was happening Impropriations is the act of simony Um, It's named after Simon from Acts, and Simon tries to pay to have the Holy Spirit, and he gets rebuked. You can't pay uh, to get the Holy Spirit. You can't pay your way in. In the 1600s, it was a tradition to pay to get a clergy or a monastery. So if you wanted to work at a church, you could give some money and that church would become your monastery. You'd own that land, you'd become the priest, whatever it is. And it was supposed to be illegal, it was outlawed, it was supposed to be done away with. In fact, it was the Puritans who went to the king and said, this is clearly not biblical, we should not be doing this anymore, we gotta stop paying, you know, our way in, basically. Um... But it didn't stop. It kept going. Even though it was illegal, it just continued and continued. So the Puritans also got upset because every time a new appointment showed up, they would kind of get passed over and it would go to someone else from the Church of England instead. And they, they were never allowed or given any chance to get monasteries or preach or platforms or whatever. So they started to raise their own money and just said, you know, we'll just buy our way in basically. We'll just start buying these churches and appointments when they come up and that's how we'll get Puritan preachers out there. Richard Sibbs was a member of this group. He uh, they were calling themselves, and I'm gonna probably—I uh, I really don't know this—is Fiafi, so I guess it's the Fiafis of for impropriations, which is really weird because again, appropriation is kind of uh, the the sin of simony, so it'd be like the members for simony, were the people looking to bribe people. It's a really weird thing. But impropriations, the sin that they're doing, the thing that goes back to Acts, uh, buying the Holy Spirit, buying your way into the church—it um, it's this thing that they started doing, and it didn't last very long, actually.
3: Yeah, yeah, it, it eventually fell apart, and in like 1633, this whole process was reviewed in court, and it was eventually determined, no, you can't buy church appointees, this has got to stop, and it's kind of this whole debacle, it's hard to tell, you know, I, where I'd fall down on that, as far as, who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, it almost reminds me kind of like modern day, just like government corruption, like, what do you, the system is so is so messed up. Like, who? Uh, yes, it's not moral. It's not biblical to buy a a a, a pastorship and. A specific area, a specific land, a specific church, but uh, that is how it's being done, and, and you are unable to grab a foothold. You're un- un- unable to grab uh, a position as a pastor unless you buy it, and they're for sale. Like they're 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 being put up for sale to purchase. And so, what do you do? Do you buy it, or do you, on principle, say no, and then you know struggle to? form together some type of a of a position yourself. It's a it's a tough, weird time for <laughs> for the church uh, and especially that kind of Puritan way of thinking to exist. And and before you
2: think, well, yeah, you know, it, it, it may be important to note too that the group of people who shut them down were the kind of this group of Arminians that didn't just were really mostly like, we don't like that you're Calvinists, so we're gonna try to shut you down and put an end to this whole Puritan thing. So the guys who end up shutting down this movement don't have like the best of intentions either. The fact that the Puritans never really pick it back up makes me think that this wasn't something they felt good about or looked back fondly on and one thing too on a personal level ministers were complaining people were complaining that one minister would get would pay for a couple different appointments and then he'd get spread you know too thin running from church to church to preach so this is look this is a controversy from a long time ago Uh, it seemed to me like the intention sibs had seemed like a good one we need to get you know people out there and since they're playing dirty we may have to play dirty just to kind of get in there with them uh but it got stopped in 1633, and that that was the last that was heard of that, basically. Uh, Sibbes was a great preacher and writer. He wrote in eloquent language, and his series on Song of Songs was actually considered to be uh, one of his best.
3: Yeah, his sermons were known for their heart, especially for their love for Christ. The Puritan people were often considered kind of stuffy and strict, but they're also known for having a great respect and love for God and having that, that personal language in which they communicate with God and, and talk with God on a personal level. Song of Songs was considered by Sibs to be his his favorite and, and again he thought this was first and foremost about the love of a bride and he saw the church as the bride and Jesus as that bridegroom and, and regardless of, of you know how literal or not you think so- so- Song of Solomon is, take a second to listen to how Sibs explains his this this love of christ that he has for his church
1: i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine he feeds his flock among the lilies song of songs 6-3 these words are a kind of triumphant declaration It is the point of Song of Songs, for when the church had spoken before of her poor dealings with Christ, and how he abandoned himself from her, she ends it all with this, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now she begins to feel some comfort from Christ, who had abandoned her. Oh, she says, despite all my sufferings, desertions, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. These words express the wondrous comfort, joy, and contentment the church now has in Christ. Her heart is inflamed with love for him. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. I am Christ's, and Christ is mine. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. From the order of these words, coming after a time of abandonment, we observe that Christ will not be long from his church. The spiritual desertions, forsakings as we used to call them, however terrible they seem to the church that loves communion with Christ, And to a loving soul to be deprived of the presence of her beloved, yet they are actually short. Christ will not be away from his church for long. His love and her desire will not let him. It would be violence. Why are you absent, they ask? Why are you so far off and hide yourself? Even if Christ may seem rude instead of sweet for a time, as he did to the woman of Canaan, but he will not stay at a distance for long. He is soon overcome. O oh woman, great is your faith, have what you will, Matthew fifteen twenty-eight. When she strove with him a little, as faith is a striving grace, see how she did win him. So the angel and Jacob may strive for a while, but because of his struggle, Jacob becomes Israel. He prevails with God, Genesis thirty two twenty four. So it is with the Christian soul and Christ. Application one. The use should not just be for comfort to stay us in such times as these, but also to teach us to wait and never give up. If the church had given up here, she would not have had such gracious manifestations of Christ to her later on. Learn here, therefore, this lesson which is to wait for God's leisure. God will wait to do good to them that wait on him, Isaiah thirty eighteen. If we wait for his leisure, he will wait for an opportunity to do good to us. When God seems as if he is not answering our prayers, let us wait. We will not lose anything by our waiting. He will wait to do good. After this temporary desertion, Christ visits his church with more abundant comfort than ever before. As she was large in her steadfastness, so he will be great in his return. He will have the last word. Therefore, learn by this experience that all things work together for the best to them that love God. Romans 8.28 All things. What? Evil? Yes. Even evil. Why, even sin forces us to become humble. Yes. And desertion turns for our good. For Christ seems to forsake us for a while. But he may come later with more abundance of comfort. When once he has created in the soul a special desire of his coming, that we may say, Oh, that he would come. When the soul is stretched with desire, in the sense of wanting him to come, This happens till it bursts forth. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He comes and he goes away for our good. He comes for your good to comfort you, after which, if you are not careful to maintain communion with him, then he goes away for your good to correct your error and to increase your desire of him again. This is to teach you to lay sure and faster hold upon him when you have him and not to let him go again. If you would see a parallel place to this, Look in Psalm 3, where there is a similar case of the spouse and Christ. By night on my bed I sought him. The church sought Christ not only by day, but by night. I sought him whom my soul loved. Though she wanted him, yet her soul loved him constantly. Though a Christian soul may not have present communion with Christ, yet he may truly say, My soul loves him, because he seeks him diligently and constantly in the use of all his means." So we see the church, before my text, calls him my beloved still, though she wanted communion with him. Well, she goes on, I sought him, but I found him not. Would the church give up? No. Then she rises and goes about the city, and about the streets, and seeks him whom her soul loved. Seeks him and will not give up. What comes from that? The watchmen go about the city and find her. Of whom... When, by her own seeking, she could not find Christ, she inquires, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? She asks the watchmen, the guides of God's people, who could not satisfy her fully. She could not find her beloved, yet what does she do? She shows us in verse 4. It was but a little while that she stayed, after she had used all means, private and public, in her bed, out of her bed, by the watchmen and others, yet, she says, It was but a little while I was gone from him. She had no answer, though the watchman gave her some good advice. It was not here, but it would be soon. Christ will exercise us a while with waiting. It was but a little while that I passed from them, when I found him whom my soul loved. After all our seeking, there must be waiting, and then we will find him whom our soul loves. Perhaps we have used all means, private and public, and yet don't find the comfort we look for. Oh, but wait a while, for God has a long time waited for you. Be content to wait a while for him. He will not lose by it, for it follows in the next verse. After she had found him whom her soul loved, I held him, and I would not let him go. So this is the issue of abandonments. They stir up diligence in searching and exercise patience to wait for God's timing. And he will not suffer a gracious soul to fail his expectations. At length he will fulfill the desires of them that fear him. Psalm 145.19 And this comes from their patience. Grace grows greater and stronger. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. The words themselves are a passionate expression of long-looked-for consolation. Affections have eloquence of their own beyond words. Fear has a proper expression. Love vents itself in broken words and sighs, delighting in a peculiar eloquence, suitable to the height and pitch of the affection. I am my beloved's, coming from a full and large heart, expressing the union and communion between Christ and the church. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. First, I say to the union of persons, which is before all comfort and communion of graces, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Christ's person is ours, and our persons are his. For, as it is in marriage, if the person of the husband is not the wife's, his goods are not hers, nor his titles of honor. For these all come to her, because his person is hers. He, having passed over the right of his own body and of his person to his wife, as she has passed over all the right of herself to her husband, So it is in this mystical marriage. I am my beloved's, and my beloved himself is mine. And indeed, nothing else will content a Christian's heart. He wouldn't care much for heaven itself if Christ wasn't there. The sacrament, word, and comforts, why does he keep them? As they come from Christ, and as they lead to Christ. But it is an adulterous and base affection to love anything apart from Christ. Now from this union of persons comes a communion of all other things I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine If Christ himself be mine then all is mine What he has done what he has suffered is mine The benefit of all is mine What he has is mine His prerogatives and privileges to be the son of God And an heir of heaven and the like All is mine Why? Because he himself is mine Union is the foundation of communion. So it is here with the church. I am my beloved's. My person is his. My life is his. To glorify him. And to lay it down when he wills. My goods are his. My reputation his. I am content to sacrifice all for him. I am his. All mine is his. So you see there is union and communion mutually between Christ and his church. First we love him. Because he loved us first. 1 John 4.19 It was a true speech of Augustine. Whatsoever is good in the world or lovely, it is either God or from God. It is either Christ or from Christ. He begins it. It is said that in nature, love descends. The father and the mother love the child before the child can love them. Love indeed is of a fiery nature. Only here is the difference. Fire goes up, and love goes down. It is stronger, going from the greater to the less, rather than ascending up from the lesser to the greater. Because the greater person looks upon the lesser as a piece of himself, sees himself in it. The father and mother see themselves in their child. So God loves us more than we can love him, because he sees his image in us. There is more than just the priority of order. He loves us first, and then we love him, but also to the cause. He is the cause of our love, not by way of motive only. He loves us. So from a genuine spirit, we must love him back. But he gives us his spirit, which circumcises our hearts to love him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. For all the motives or moral arguments in the world without the spirit cannot make us love. First Thessalonians 4, 9. We are taught of God to love one another. How much more do we need to be taught to love Him whom we never saw, so that His love kindles ours by way of reflection? In the New Covenant, God works both sides, His own and our side too. Our love to Him, our fear of Him, our faith in Him, He works all. Even as He shows His own love to us. If God loves us, what must we do? Meditate upon His love. Let our hearts be warmed with the consideration of it. Let us bring them to that fire of his love, and then they will wax hot within us, and beg the Spirit, Lord, you have promised to give your Spirit to them that ask it, Luke eleven ten, and to circumcise our hearts to love you, and to love one another. Give your Holy Spirit as you have promised, in a word, these words, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, to join them both together. Now, where you see a malicious, unclean, worldly spirit, know that this is a stamp of the devil, not of Christ's. He that doesn't have the spirit of God is not one of his. Now, where the spirit of Christ is, it stamps Christ's likeness upon the soul. Again, these words, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, implies a mutual care, that Christ and the soul are looking for each other's good of looking after each other's honor and reputation. As Christ cares for our good, so a Christian soul must have Christ's good in mind when it comes to his children, religion, and truth. What, will such a soul say, will Christ care for my body, soul, and salvation, and stoop to come from heaven to save me, but I have no care for his glory? Won't I stand up for the faith? Will I pretend he cares for me, but not care for what he wants me to care for? Is it not an honor to me that he has trusted me to care for anything, that he will be honored by my care? Beloved, it is an honor for us that we may speak a good word for religion, for Christ's cause, for his church, against maligners and opposers. And we know one day that Christ will be a rewarder of every good word. Where this is said in sincerity, that Christ is mine and I am Christ's, there will be this mutual care. Likewise, there is implied a mutual contentment in these words. By contentment, I mean a resting, peaceful love. Christ has a contentment in resting in the church, and the church has contentment in Christ, Christ in us, and we in him. A true Christian soul that has yielded up its consent to Christ when it is beaten in the world, vexed and troubled, can rely on this. I have a loving husband. I have Christ. Let us search ourselves. What we rest in, when we meet with afflictions. Those that have brutish and beastly souls retire to carnal contentments and good company. They will seek to forget in passion and fly away from themselves. They fly away from their own consciences and deal with their own troubles. Whereas a soul that knows God in Christ, so that it may say that Christ is mine and I am Christ's, there will be contentment and rest in such a soul, whatever it meets with in the world. The last thing implied is courage. Say against me whatever you can, says the resolved soul. I will be Christ's. There is courage with resolution. One will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will subscribe and surname himself by the name of Israel. Isaiah 44, 5. Where there isn't this resolution in good causes, there is not the spirit of Christ. But it is a delusion and self-flattery to say, I am Christ's, when there is no resolve to stand for Christ. These words are the expression of a resolved heart. I am, and I will be, Christ's. I am not ashamed of my bargain. Of the consent I have given him, I am, and I will be, his. You see this in Micah 4, 5. All people will walk, every one, in the name of his God. They will resolve on that. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So that, where these words are spoken in truth that I am Christ's, there is necessarily implied, I will own him and his cause forever and ever. He has married me forever and ever. Therefore, if I hope to have an interest in him for comfort forever and ever, I must be sure to yield myself to him forever and ever, and stand for his cause against all enemies. These run parallel with this in the text. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine not only holding in the person, but in the cause of Christ. Every man hopes his God will stand for him against the devil, who accuses us daily. If we want to have Christ stand for us, and to be an advocate and plead our cause as he does in heaven, we must resolve to stand for him against all enemies, heretics, persecutors. Question. But when it isn't easy, and we feel no comfort from Christ, and have no assurance of his love, what should we think? Solution. We should not wonder to see poor souls bothered when they are in spiritual desertions, considering how the spouse cannot endure the absence of Christ. It is out of love, therefore, in the deepest plunge she has in her mouth, my beloved. Therefore, let us not judge wrongly of ourselves or others when we are impatient in this kind. A lack of a feeling of the love of Christ, if we carry a constant love towards Him, "'Mourn to him, and seek after him as the church should. "'Then feel or do not feel we are his, "'and he will at length reveal himself to us. "'Let such drooping spirits consider, "'and as he will not be long from us, "'nor ever fully abandon us, "'so it will not be for our disadvantage "'that he hides himself at all. "'His absence at length will end "'in a sweet discovery of himself "'more abundantly than before.' He absents Himself for our good, to make us more humble and watch for the time to come, showing more pity to others, more aware of our former condition, and all to regain that sweet communion which, by our negligence and security, we lost. When we are prepared by His absence, there ensues a more satisfying discovery of Himself than ever before. But when is the time that He comes? Compare this with the former chapter. He comes after long waiting for him. The church waited for him and waited in the use of all her resources. She runs to the watchman and then inquires after him of the daughters of Jerusalem. After this, she finds him. And after we have waited and expected Christ in the use of resources, Christ at length will discover himself to us. And yet, more immediately, it was after the church had so deservedly exalted him in such lofty praises this is my beloved. The chief of ten thousand, he is altogether lovely. When we set our hearts on the high exaltation of Christ above all things in the world, proclaiming him the chief of ten thousand, this, at the last, breeds a gracious discovery. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. For Christ, when he sees us faithful, and so loving that he will not endure his absence, and so endurably loving that we love him despite some discouragements, it melts him at the last. As Joseph was melted by his brethren, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. In the words, you see a mutual interest in owning between Christ and the church. Notice the order of words. The church says, I am my beloved's first, yet, in order of nature, Christ is ours first, though not in order of discovery. There is one order of knowing and another order of causing. Many things are known by the effect. But they issue from a cause. I know he is mine because I am his. I have given myself to him. I know it is day because the sun is up. There is a proof from the effect. So I know a man is alive because he walks. There is a proof of the cause by the effect. I am his. I have grace to give myself up to him. Therefore I know he loves me. He is mine. So I say, in order of discovery. But, in order of nature, he is first mine, and then I am his. If he is ours, if we have the field, then we have all the treasures in the field. If we have him, we have all his. He was born for us. His birth was for us. He became man for us. He was given to death for us. And so, likewise, he is ours in this other estate of exaltation. His rising is for our good he will cause us to rise also and ascend with him and sit in heavenly places judging the world and the angels we recover in the second adam what we lost in the first adam use 1 this is a point of wondrous comfort to show the riches of a christian his high estate that christ is his in christ being ours god the father and the holy spirit and everything else in the world the rich promises are ours For in Christ they are all made, and for Him they will be performed. For indeed, He is the chief promise of all Himself. 2 Corinthians one twenty. Can we lack righteousness while we have Christ's righteousness? Is not His garment large enough for Himself and us too? Is not His obedience enough for us? Will we need to patch it up with our own righteousness? He is ours. Therefore, his obedience is ours. Use 2. And this should be the ground likewise of contentment that Christ himself is ours. In the dividing of all things, some men have wealth, honors, friends, and greatness, but not Christ, nor the love of God in Christ, and therefore they have nothing in mercy. But a Christian, he has Christ himself. Christ is his by faith and by the Spirit's witness. Therefore, what if he wants those lesser things? He has the ocean. What if he wants a stream? Such a man may be very covetous, yet God might still satisfy him. What, should anxious thoughts bother us when we have such bills, such obligations from him who is faithfulness itself? When a Christian cannot say honor, favor, or great persons are his, he can still say he has that which is worth all, more than all, because Christ is his objection oh someone may say so what if christ is yours a man may still be in lack and be in misery answer no it is a reality christ is ours and so everything else is ours he that can command all things is mine why then do i want other things because he sees they are not for my good if they were he would not withhold them from me If there were none to be had without a miracle, no comfort, no friends, he could and would make something new out of nothing. Maybe even out of contraries were it not better for me to be without them. Use 3. So that you may even more fully feed on this comfort. Study the excellencies of Christ in the scripture. Study the riches and honor that he has, the favor he is in with the Father, with the intercession that he makes in heaven, John 17. Study his mercy, goodness, offices, power, and then come home to yourselves. All this is mine, for he is mine. The love of God is mine. God loves him, and therefore he loves me, because we are both one. He loves me with the same love that he loves his son. So we should make use of this, that Christ is ours. I now come to the other part. I am my beloved's. How are we Christ's beloved? 1. We are His, first of all, by His Father's gift. For God in His eternal purpose gave Him for us and gives us to Him, as it is in the excellent prayer, "'Father, yours they were, and you gave them to me,' John seventeen six. "'I did not have them of myself first, but yours they were before all worlds were. You gave them to me to redeem them, and my commission does not extend beyond your gift.' "'I die for all those that you gave me. "'I sanctify myself for them, that they may be sanctified.'" So we are Christ's in his Father's gift. But that is not all, though it be the chief fundamental principle. For, two, we are his likewise by redemption. Christ took our nature that he might die for us, to purchase us. We cost him dearly. We are a bloody spouse to Christ." as that forward woman wrongfully said to Moses you are a bloody husband to me exodus 425 so christ may without wrong say to the church you are a spouse of blood to me we were to be his spouse but first he must win us by conquest in regard to satan and then satisfy justice we were in such debt by sin lying under god's wrath until all debts were paid we could have never been given justly as a spouse to christ three and this isn't all we are christ by marriage also for when he purchased us and paid so dearly for us when he died and satisfied divine justice he did it with a purpose to marry us to himself we have nothing to bring him but debt and misery yet he took upon him our nature so that he might marry us and take us to himself so we are his by marriage 4. Then again, we are his by consent. We have passed ourselves over to him. He has given himself to us, and we have given ourselves to him back again. To come to some use of it, we are Christ's, as Christ is ours. Use 1. First, it is a point of wonderful comfort. God will not suffer his own to lack. He is worse than a heathen that will suffer his family to perish. When we are one of Christ's family, and not only of his family, but of his body, his spouse, can we think he will suffer us to lack that which is needed? 2. Then again, as it comforts us against want, so it likewise fences us against the accusations of Satan. I am Christ's. I am Christ's. If he has anything to say, lo, we may bid him go to Christ. So in all temptations, learn here, to send Satan where he should be sent. When we cannot answer him, send him to Christ. Three, and for the time to come, what a ground of comfort is this, that we are Christ's as well as he is ours. What a plea does this put into our mouths for all things that are beneficial to us. Lord, I am yours, save me, says the psalmist. Why? Save me because I am yours. I am yours, Lord, teach me and direct me. Psalm 27:11 The husband is to direct the spouse the head should direct all the senses all the treasures of wisdom are in Christ as all the senses are in the head for the good of the body all fullness dwells in him therefore plead with him i want wisdom teach me and instruct me how to behave myself in trouble in danger in fears will we attribute more pity and mercy to ourselves than to the god of mercy and comfort who planted all these affections in the creature, will he make men tender and careful over others? And don't you think he himself will be careful of his own flock? Do we think that he will neglect his jewels, his spouse, his diadem and crown? Isaiah 62.3 He will not. But you will say, that is not my experience. We see how the church is used, even as an unloved widow, as if she had no husband in the world, as an orphan that had no father. So how is this good? Answer 1. The answer is all that the church or any particular Christian suffers in this world is that there may be a likeness between the spouse and the husband. The head wore a crown of thorns and went to heaven through a great deal of misery and abasement in the world. And it is not expected that the church should go to heaven another way. Answer 2. It will also bring the church and Christ nearer together. That is all the hurt they do drives the church nearer to Christ than before. Christ is as near to his church as ever in the greatest afflictions, by his Spirit. Christ cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a strange voice that God should be his God, and yet despite it, seem to forsake him. But God was never more his God than at that present. Indeed, he was not his God in regard of some feelings that he had enjoyed in former times. So the church may say, I am yours still. Though she seems to be forsaken in regard to some feelings, yet she is not deserted in regard to God's care and support of the inward man. The church has never had sweeter communion with Christ than under the greatest crosses, and they many times have proved the ground of the greatest comforts. For Christ leads the church into the wilderness, and then speaks to her heart. Hosea 2.14 Christ speaks to the heart of his spouse in the wilderness, and in a place of no comfort. There are no orchards or pleasures, but all discomfort is there. A man may have it from heaven, if he has any good in the wilderness. There is in the wilderness oftentimes a sweet intercourse of love, comparably beyond the time of prosperity. Answer 3. To stay your hearts. Know this will not be long. It may be midnight at this time, but the night will not be long. It will be morning soon. Therefore the church may say, Don't rejoice against me, O my enemy, For though I have fallen, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light for me. As it is, Micah 7, 8. It will not always be poor with the church. Those that survive us will see other kinds of days better than we have seen. Answer 4. We also can use trials. As he gives himself, not his goods or his honors, but himself for his church. So the church gives herself to Christ. My delight is in him. He has myself, my heart, my love, and my affection, my joy and delight. If I have any honor, he will have it. I will use it for his glory. My riches, I will give them to him in his church and ministry and children. I am his, therefore all I have is his, if he asks it of my hands. It is said of the Macedonians, they gave themselves to Christ, and then their riches and goods, 2 Corinthians 8, 5. It is an easy matter to give our riches to Christ when we have given ourselves first. A Christian, as soon as he becomes a Christian, he gives up himself, even to the point of death, for Christ. They that stand with Christ, and will give this thing or that thing, but will part only with idle things that they may spare without feeling hurt, are they Christ's? No. A Christian gives himself, in all his, to Christ. So we see here what we should do if Christ is ours. Let us give ourselves up to him, as it is, Romans 12.1. The issue of all that learned profound discourse in the former part of the epistle, that Christ justifies us by his righteousness and merit, and sanctifies us by his spirit, and has predestined and elected us, and refused others, is this. I beseech you, give up your bodies and souls, and all as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In brief, these words imply renunciation and resignation. I am His. That is, I have given up myself to Him. Therefore, I renounce all others that don't stand with His love and liking. I am not only His by way of service, which I owe Him above all that call for it, but I am His by way of resignation. If He will have me die, I will die. If He will have me live, I will. I don't have myself to dispose of any longer. I have altogether alienated myself from myself. I am his to serve him, his to be disposed of by him. I have renounced all other. Therefore, here we have another answer to Satan, if he comes to us and solicits us to sin. Let the Christian's heart make this answer. I am not my own. What has Satan and his instruments to do with me? Is my body his to defile? Is my tongue his to swear at his pleasure? Will I make the temple of God the member with a harlot? As the apostle reasons, will I defile my vessel with sin? 1 Corinthians 6.15 What says the converted Ephraim? What do I have to do with idols? For I have seen and observed him. Hosea 14.8 We should have such resolutions ready in our hearts. Indeed, when a Christian is resolute, The world counts it as a loss. He is gone. We have lost him, say your profane friends. It is true they have lost him indeed, for he is not his own, much less theirs any longer. But he is found to God and himself and the church. So we see what springs from this, that Christ is ours, and that we are Christ's back again. Let us carry this with us even to death. And if time should come that God should honor us by serving himself of us in our lives, and if Christ will have us spend our blood, consider this. I am not my own in life or death, and it is my happiness that I am not my own. For if I were my own, what should I do with myself? I should lose myself just as Adam did. It is therefore my happiness that I am not my own, that I am not the world's, that I am not the devil's, that no one else has to do with me that no one has claimed any interest in me, but I am Christ's. If I do anything for others, it is for Christ's sake. Remember this for the time to come. If there is anything that we will not part with for Christ's sake, it will be our bane. We will lose Christ, and that thing too. If we will not say with the perfect spirit, I am his, my life, my credit, my person is his, anything his, look at what we will not give him. At length, we will lose and part with it and him too.
2: Richard Sibbs talks about in the sermon how the the lovers, you know, looking for their beloved, and they have to wait for them, and how hard that time period is we often complain. I think, oh, I don't know where God is. I don't feel him. I'm not close to him. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Whatever it is, and and some level, we're just waiting for God, and we get very frustrated. I I just want to know what God wants me to do. I want to feel his closeness, and it it seems unfair that we have to. I'm open to God. God, why do I have to wait for you? But he reminds us that waiting for God, considering what God has done for us on the cross, considering what God will do for us with heaven and the future, and considering He will come back, we will feel His presence again, we shouldn't complain so much about those periods of waiting and and waiting on the Lord. Even though it's a sign that we love Him, we should love Him and not complain about that wait as hard as it is. And, And also to Remember that as soon as we see Jesus Christ face to face, as soon as we leave this earth and we are in his presence, that waiting will have felt like nothing compared to actually being in the presence of God and keeping that in mind that this waiting that we feel on earth it hurts, but it's going to go away and someday we will kind of honestly have forgotten that we ever did.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Lee Jones. Lee Jones is uh, an Ohio-based theology nerd. That's, that's his words, not mine. But he's a podcaster who works in the nursing home industry. He's a church man who serves in his congregation as a volunteer sound guy. I can relate to that for sure. Uh, he's the co-host of the Guys with Bibles podcast on the Bar Network. He seeks to study scripture, discuss doctrine, and glorify God. If you want to know more about Revive Thoughts or see the transcript for today's episode or any of our episodes, visit ReviveThoughts.com. We are working on a special
2: history episode. We are, it is going to be in depth. I don't want to maybe put too much pressure on it, make it live up to something, but I got to say, we are doing a very deep dive on the Salem Witch Trials. And from a Christian perspective, you know, you may go out there and find um, stuff on the Salem Witch Trials, but witch trials, but you might not find as much stuff from two Christians who believe in God telling you what we kind of are looking at here. I think it's going to be a very good episode, but it's going to be out there for our Patreon supporters. Uh, Three bucks a month gets you kind of in that club, gets you a part of that. You're going to get a bookmark, which we have been working on. I'm looking at a stack of them right now, actually. That just helps us make this show better and make this show continue going. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
3: On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
2: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
3: how to not hate your in-laws,
2: ways to save money for your next vacation,
3: and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
2: Join us, Daniel
3: and Christina M,
2: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and
0: family.
3: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.